in my infinite mercy, I allow you to say some respectful words. Very good. I don't know what's with me today. Am I in such a good mood, you know? <laughs> well, we'll change that. Okay. Oh, you see, that's why I love her. You see, yes. So welcome, everyone, on the eve of Nietzsche's birthday and the eternal Seriously? return. Yeah. yeah. Tomorrow's the day. Sorry. I mean, so let us My thank. dates are other. I like the 3rd or 5th of April. You know what happens then? Stalin's death and so on. Huh? Yeah. 15th of October, Nietzsche's birthday. So many introductions inadvertently establish firewalls, but I, on the contrary, intend to open essential dossiers and inescapable trajectories. Is this your Nietzsche? Quote from Nietzsche or you? <laughs> um, no, I'm honored that you can't tell. Oh, yeah. It's me. <laughs> okay, it's sorry. Avital Friedrich Ronell. <laughs> I know what you are. You are the new reincarnated version of, I'm sorry to do this, but you know, I love that pseudo-feminist bullshit where they say, behind every creative man, there is really a woman <laughs> whom he appropriates. Like, you know, like, usually they are, you know, like, uh, James Joyce has stolen all free association stuff from Nora's notebooks and so on. But I always challenge them, you know, Go to the end, rehabilitate Elizabeth Förster Nietzsche, you know, who was, we know what, you know. Didn't he give Nietzsche's walking stick to a certain democratically elected politician? <laughs> Sorry, I talk too much, I promise. No, now. you're great. I just want, does everyone know who Elizabeth Förster Nietzsche is? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, she's well, the... Well, the only good thing is that she was played in a movie by Dominique Sanda, the actress, when she was young, she was beautiful. Sorry for this sexist note. And in another movie, don't underestimate it. It's called The Train. You can download it for free. Three hours. You know which train? From Zurich to, to, to Petersburg. It's that journey. She plays Inessa Armand. And, it's pro, and you know who plays Lenin? Ben Kingsley. Much better there than Gandhi. You know, much better. No. I'm not kidding. It's a nicely done movie. You can download it for free. Now, believe me or not, I will infinitely surprise you and shut up. You. <laughs> Let's see how long that promissory note um, la lasts. But Elisabeth Foster Nietzsche was um, Nietzsche's pernicious fasci fascist yeah. sister. Really pernicious. And his DJ, she, she created his so-called oeuvre. And so it's not a compliment. And sorry, I broke my. I knew you know it. I knew it. I, I was in Nietzsche's house in Weimar. Maybe you were also. Yes. Of and course. no, this is really disgusting from her. You know, when in the last years of Nietzsche, when he was practically immobile, mad, she pulled like a kind of a, with elephant men horror show. You know, guests they were shown uh, Nietzsche there. She was disgusting. I mean. No, she and, literally and used him yeah, to... She yeah, she propped him up in Goethe's library, and the image that we have of him with the big mustache yeah. in a stupor is his sister's uh, photoshopping. I didn't know this, really. Yeah. yeah. No, you, you don't do Nietzsche mostly, do you? Sorry? You don't do much Nietzsche. No, you know what's the problem? Uh, yeah, there are authors whom I know they are great key philosophers, but... Yeah. 
and I don't mean it, I'm sorry, this will be absolutely, it's not meant to be sexualized in a dirty way, but I'm ashamed. I cannot penetrate them. You know? Some, I cannot really. I know that I miss something there, a great thing, but I, I cannot. Did you try? Sorry? Did you try? With Viagra, with everything, and it didn't work. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, so we haven't penetrated Nietzsche, but happy birthday anyway. Um, now, you want me to sing happy birthday to you, happy birthday, dear Friedrich, or what? <laughs> okay, that's an idea. So it gives me pleasure, maybe a dose of sadistic pleasure, to display my slave, Slav Slavoj, my pup, my drug of choice in terms of emetics, mm -hmm. who has, as you will see and already know, his way of doing and undoing things, his own rebranding of destructive jouissance and driving us beyond any pleasure principle. In Zachemasoch's Venus in Furs, this is the name that headlines and donates the concept and behaviors of masochism to our culture. Zachemasoch urges that it is up to the Slavs, once a jewel of the Austrian Empire, to revolutionize the world and the lead sentence goes, one more round, Slavs, uttered by a newly emergent, ruthlessly on point, and intellectually brutal Tsarina. This is not an allegory. Well, Slavoj and I go back a long way and confound the more delicate and sensitive souls around us who cannot understand why, against all odds and oddballs, we are built to last. Now, if you are religious, I admit it. When God created the world, we were meant to be in contact. Right? It's just a simple it's fact self. of theology. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So we're locked in an embrace of friendship. We are like pigs in shit. You are a pig. You are a pig. Okay, okay, that's a democratic debate. We okay. Can. <laughs> Part of the Nietzschean project of a frolicking Wissenschaft, joyfully disturbing all sorts of protocols of serene and sanctioned collegiality. Slavoj, for his part, can be obscene and I, in other ways, do not appease. But we hardly match the obscenity of our time. That's unfortunately true. Right? <laughs> Compared to, to them, we're just innocents and hardly capable of indecency. So, again, he's a joy. Don't, We're like don't, pigs don't push and shit. It too far. <laughs> Life affirming. Still, it remains a theological mystery that I routinely lower myself to his level, <laughs> even if only to command some of his more compelling and indeed compelled moves. He remains live feed for my sadistic impulses normally, alas, 
redirected toward myself. I dare say that the intensities of our singular experience of abjection have found a refuge in each other, and thus the German department, with a paradoxical pump of pride, seriously presents our Zizek on a yearly basis like an annual shot of immunity and guarantor of strength. He bears the dignified title of global distinguished professor. I never got this. If you are global, distinguished is narrow. Global is everywhere, like, you know what I mean? Like, no. It's like uh, exclusively average, you know, like <laughs> something I don't get. Yeah, <laughs> it's very NYU. Yeah, that's, yeah. But now I'm serious, but don't be too no, masochist. I mean, we're not as NYU is still as much better than, uh, than, let's say, those who think that they are the center of the world, like Harvard, Princeton, and so Absolutely. On. I hope I didn't um, misrepresent myself here. No, what? I'm a Stalinist. You can hope, but the party will decide, you know, <laughs> okay. like, and you will be properly informed. Like, All right, let me know. So, Slavoj, whose abundant work has induced new mappings, this is the nice part where I had to throw up a few times. Yeah. Um, new mappings and disjunctive complicities among decisive thinkers will speak to us about Hegel this evening. What? Yeah, I will, I will, but like in a mediated way, but okay, yeah. yeah. Okay, in a mediated yeah. way. <laughs> How else does one speak of Hegel? Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> Touche. On your knees. Okay. About Hegel this evening from a particular point of view, a mediated point of view. Who is Hegel to us? but also who are we to Hegel and his phantomic residue? Don't you think I have a lot of nerve to pretend I know what you're gonna talk about? No, I'm used to it. Do you see, what do you think that I know what I will talk about? <laughs> okay, <laughs> good. I gave in the last three days three talks, and in each of them I got caught in introductory improvisation, and at the end I didn't even reach the beginning. Okay, so, I'm gonna move so, it. I'm gonna move but it. But today fast. I will try to. Yes, yeah. Yes. Okay. I just have a few more um, points to score to help everyone elevate what they're about to hear and dialectize what you're going to present. So, in a premiere text of Werner Hamacher, the name Hegel was exposed as more or less a cryptophore shown to be in avoidance and simultaneous embrace of ekel, the German word for disgust. The way, <laughs> did you know that? No, but I know what ekel is, yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so do part I. Of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Hegel and Kant battled disgust mm. in matters of judgment of taste Aesthetic? Now, I will be really nasty, but don't you think that if we take the very vulgar everyday meaning in English of the term which is the name of that philosopher that you just mentioned, I will not repeat it, that for some anti-feminist, that is Ekelhaft, no? So this is maybe the deeper unity of Kant and Eckel, you know, but okay. Oh, I see. Ah, you Very see, she's nice. a little bit retarded, you know. She needs some time to get. I'm retarded. For whom is it Ekelhaft? 
What kind of a statement is that? What? Can't. No, no wait a minute. I hope you got the point. That was extremely vulgar. <laughs> yeah, no, you said it's ekelhaft. No, but Kant is ekelhaft. Yeah, how Kant dare you? in the sense of, yeah. I got it. Believe no, I, me, I got it. I, yeah, you got it. Okay, I was And you're going to get it. Yeah, okay. Okay. <laughs> What's not to get? Sorry? What's not to get? Uh, no, I could have gone on, but <laughs> even for me, I have some limits. Okay. If I were to go now into the associations, gone <laughs> dog lines, it would be, they would have been too much even for me. So let's go on. Wow. So Ekel discussed in the, uh, in the question of taste, aesthetics, and beyond some pleasure principles, historically traverses Zizek and gets recycled in ways we still need to consider. See, that's a big compliment, that we still need to consider what you do. But isn't this the ultimate academic empty phrase? The no, meaning of this we still need to consider is there should always be money. We may, must maybe sure. You know, I read once and It's a deconstructive compliment no, that you I have futurity. I read a wonderful vulgar analysis of why professors of literature like this idea of, you know, no interpretation can exhaust the work of art. It means we will always, we can always justify keeping our job, you know, like, can you imagine you are a professor of Goethe and then you say, now we know what he wanted. What do you, you know? I've been saying it for years. Yeah. <laughs> So what does it mean to be disgusting, disgusted, lacking in good taste, politically and ethically? We look to Slavoj to understand the relevant vicissitudes I thought I had the of monopoly disgust. Of. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Before turning the podium over, let me say a word about the title of tonight's talk. Is Hegel dead or are we dead in the eyes of Hegel? A Hegelian view of the present age. So I'd like to offer some nano pointers to help you with the trek so you can climb every mountain. Remember your, your talk on climb oh, every mountain? The greatest mountain. movie of all time. Yeah. <laughs> Zizek asks us to reflect on a reverting hinge of historicity how we c constitute a legacy and where the crucial facets of inheritance mark us to this day in what Heidegger would call a historial way. Gerhard Richter, in a book soon to appear, surprisingly relies on Zizek's way of reversing the visor. Uh, did you know this? No. Uh, but you mean, uh, like, not literally? Yeah, literally. No, I'm here. For a brief moment, I'm serious and not arrogant. Does he even know that I exist? Oh, no, this is Gerhard Richter. Yeah. No. And uh, not the painter. Not the painter. Ah, then OK, OK. <laughs> but he does, even the painter knows you exist. Maybe, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, there's, there's the chair of the German department at Brown University. His name is Gerhard ah, Richter, and he actually um, interviewed Gerhard Richter, the painter, as well. Well, it's like in some Woody Allen movie, you know? Right. He was there asking himself a question, then he ran to the other side and <laughs> pretended to be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, his way of reversing the visor, according to a, a logic that I suppose in this case would have 
Hegel be visor and supervisor, reading and powering through our own unintelligibilities and superstructures of note. Zizek thus shifts the key movers in the very concept of transmissibility by having Hegel read us and our particular maneuvers in the constellation. But to yeah. be fair, you know that Adorno, I'm plagiarizing Adorno here. I no, know, but I This is the I wonderful beginning of Adorno's drive studium to Hegel, no? A scathing attack on the most stupid title of a book, Benedetto Croce's What is Alive and What is Dead? Like, who are we to adopt that arrogant attitude, not? And he, Adorno says, we have to, I mean, when I read about people like Benedetto Croce, his book, I'm, I'm tempted to say, my God, maybe Goebbels, not your Goebbels without S, who is now <laughs> back in Germany, but the real one, you know, that when he said he was, you know, burning books and so on. When I hear about books like Croce's, my temptation is to say, but maybe there was a same principle in Goebbels. He was just burning the wrong books, like <laughs> burn books like Croce's book, you know. Do you consider Adorno a philosopher? That's a very good question. I would say almost a philosopher. And nice. crucially, I hope here we agree, I'm not this postmodern lover of fragments and so on, but for Adorno, wouldn't you agree? I think Adorno is much, the masterpieces of Adorno are for me quasi una fantasia, prisms, not in pure literature. And I think his last syste late systematic books don't really work, if you ask me. Yeah. So in this sense, uh, in this sense, Adorno, Adorno uh, was so-so on the, ma to use this fashionable Deridean title, and that doesn't mean this ironically, like more on the margins of philosophy. I'm not Very a total, total Adornian in this sense. So by having Hegel read us and our particular maneuvers in the constellation of world and embodiment, whether Oedipalized or anti-Oedipalized, no. let me now offer our one unending trigger warning mm -hmm. as my best fiend, Slavoj Žižek, reads Hegel reading us. Thank you. I am grateful to you. Thank you very much. And don't be too afraid. After a, just a couple of tasteless introductory remarks, we will do some, let's call it naively, serious work. First, and those of you who know certain troubles that uh, uh, Avital got caught into, I think it was already 20 years ago, the most beautiful characterization that I can give of you is, you are my favorite uh, uh, Braune Frau, you know, Thank from you. Helderlin. Thank you. I, I hope some of you know what I'm referring to, the problem. Next point, I'm so sad because you mentioned Heidegger and so on. You know this big debate now, Schwarze Hefte, here, there, and so on. Yeah. Uh, I wrote a text, haven't yet even published it where I go, it, I try to do the impossible. On the one hand, yes, bring out the logic of Heidegger's anti-Semitism and so on, but nonetheless, I claim that there is in this 
a tact of Habermasian rationalists and so on on Heidegger, in this, to put it bluntly, their attempt to criminalize Heidegger. <coughs> there is something much more ominous going on. I claim that if you really look at it in detail, you discover that the true enemy is not even so much Heidegger. What they want to criminalize is a certain fundamental doubt in, in enlightenment, which you find even in, uh, in Adorno and Benjamin. I'm even tempted to go to the end and claim that at a certain level, you know, the true target is Adorno-Benjamin. One should reread, I have all the respect for Habermas, but here I don't agree with him. The key text of Habermas, I think, is the one he wrote when there was the anniversary some 10 years ago of dialectic der Aufklärung. Mm -hmm. And it's something like, I need a bemerkung and whatever, um, uh, rereading of, uh, and it's clear what his line of argumentation is there, what bothers him. To cut a long story short, the problem is this one. There were, to put it mildly in the like underestimation of the century, some slightly unpleasant things in the 20th century going on in Europe. And the point is to put it very simply, is this just a deviation, historical distortion of the project of enlightenment, or is it an immanent potential which somehow belong to the very core of enlightenment. I'm here on the side of Adorno and so on against Habermas, because why? Because the greatness of Adorno and Benjamin and others is that Lacan says the same on the very cover of Ecree. He says, our battle is the battle of enlightenment going on. Adorno always emphasizing, even if there is a structural flaw in Enlightenment project. This absolutely doesn't mean that we abandon Enlightenment, you know, with all that absolutely disgusting metaphorics of oh, our mind, reason is just like the top of the iceberg and there are some deep passions below or whatever. You know, the point, and here I think, and this, I'm saying this almost out of some sympathy for Habermas. I think he's in a tragic position in the sense that now that we again have phenomena which are returning again and again, you know, all the racisms, anti-feminisms exploding here and there and so on. I don't think his philosophy is, how should I call it, dark, strong enough to confront this yeah. phenomena. Uh, he uh, wants to see it as a slight aberration. Yeah, yeah. The title, it, it all says the title of his book, what is modernity, no modernität, which means, of course, the same as enlightenment, as unvollendet as, as unfinished project. Like, no, we have just to go yeah. further. And again, this is why, with all my respect for them, but uh, isn't this a strange fact? And I spoke about this with some Habermasians, I don't want to compromise them here now by mentioning them. And they agreed with me. Namely, if some of you know Habermas, okay, I challenge you, do a simple test, how should I put it, experiment. If, let's say, you live in the second half of the 20th century and you read all of Habermas, would you, but somehow you are isolated from international politics, 
Would you ever have guessed from his texts that there were two Germanys? That there was East Germany? Or maybe in some journalistic text, but what to do with Stalinism? I, sorry, you can correct me immediately. I don't mean this as a rhetorical offer. Mm -hmm. But and again, uh, once at a conference here, years ago, that Turkish Habermasian, no irony meant, uh, Sheila Benhabit, started to shout at whatever. No, but I didn't mean it as, it's a much more tragic thing, why this almost total silence, not on the facts, but on theoretical analysis of Stalinism, when if you come to think about it, the true dialectic of enlightenment is Stalinism much more than fascism. Fascism is relatively simple in its elementary structure, no? It means conservative revolution, or to use the term, I use it with all vicious evil energy that I can imagine, it's an alternate modernity. Precisely, that's why I'm radically opposed to this term, unfortunately adopted by some so-called post-colonial and so on. Precisely what they want. We want to have modernity, which means always capitalism, let's not bullshit, but without its bad aspects, no? I mean, fascism proposed the first great formula of this, modernity without Jews, no? <laughs> you know what I mean? So in this sense, uh, uh, in this sense, again, going back to it, uh, uh, for me, uh, the threat, uh, it, it, the point is not that they were lying or cheating politically. For example, the counter argument some Habermasians gave to me, also that guy, I think it was him, I'm sorry, Andreas Huysen from Colombia, is that of course they, were, they wanted to criticize Stalinism, but they were afraid that if they do it publicly, it would have been incorporated, used, manipulated by cold warriors, no? I don't think this holds for simple empirical reasons that in their public political statements, Adorno, Horkheimer even more, didn't have any problems condemning in the most ruthless, open way what they perceived as Soviet totalitarianism. To give you an extreme example, and I think this is also a nice characteristic of the psychological difference between uh, Adorno and Horkheimer. I remember, I'm old enough, unfortunately, 67, 8, uh, some American general visited Germany. And it was already the beginning of student Bewegung movement. There were demonstrations, and they called on Horkheimer, like, will you join the anti-American and uh, it was anti-Vietnam War already, no? Right. You know what uh, Horkheimer wrote publicly? He said, no, whenever United States intervenes, World War II Korea, they do it for the cause of freedom. And the same holds today in Vietnam. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not making fun of, I mean, there are even, frankly, Maybe up to a point it was even true because that type of Vietnamese communism was historically a deadlock. My point is not that. My point is simply that you cannot accuse them of being afraid of manipulated by Cold War and so on and so on. If anything, I often don't agree with Fred Jameson, but read his text, his reply 
to one of Adorno's beautiful texts, but I think it's a misplaced critique of George Lukacs, maybe you know it, the Erpreste Versöhnung, the Enforced uh, Reconciliation. It has, maybe you know this, the most beautiful sarcastic ending, that the problem of Lukacs is that uh, he confused the sound of his chains with the voice of Weltgeister. But then Jameson made a wonderful counter-argument. Adorno wrote this text in 57 and published it in Mercure, which, as we know today, was financed by CIA as part of the anti-communist cultural warfare, while on the other hand, you know where was, if you know a little bit of history, Lukacs at that point, literally in chains in Bucharest, because he was heroic enough to uh, uh, join Imre Nats uh, anti-Soviet government, and he was, of course, immediately arrested. Mm -hmm. So, sorry? Budapest. No, no, no. In Budapest, he was arrested. But then they were all put into a castle for a year to, uh, to, uh, to Bucharest. And there is a wonderful legend that when they were there, uh, it was a castle, Schloss, Kafka. And that Lukács' reaction was, maybe Kafka was right, this is his castle there. And my God, you know, he was naive, but there is a certain naive Central European beauty in Lukács. There is a myth which his ex-mistress, I don't mean this in any uh, uh, dirty way, just that she was really close to him. She was teaching around the corner at some point, no? Agnes Heller told me a wonderful story, which is then repeated in some biographies, that, you know, when, immediately when the Russian tanks took over uh, 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 Budapest, of course, they came to arrest him and everyone, and then they broke into his apartment, KGB, whatever, Russian policeman, and an officer stepped towards Lukacs and told him, please give me all your weapons. You must know the story, it's beautiful, what Lukacs did. He pulled out his pen and said, sorry, that's the only weapon I have. I mean, fuck it, I'm sentimental here. <laughs> I like it, you know. So, but let's go on, because this debate is crucial. You know, like, I think that Habermas himself once draws this comparison that, uh, that today the debate between this Habermasian Enlightenment people and what people like Richard Wallin and so on dismiss as this French irrationalist, half proto-fascist, whatever stuff, you know, mm. that, uh, that, uh, that uh, it's a repetition of the famous dialogue, was it 29 Davos, you remember? There was a book with a wonderful title, I admit it, Continental Divide, about, you still can get it, I think, uh, about that big debate there, uh, Heidegger and, uh, and Kassirer. And again, uh, Habermas once made the problem like, maybe we should reverse our judgment, because it became part of philosophical doxa that Heidegger won, not in the cheap rhetorical sense, but that. The, the result of the debate was a defeat of a certain naive enlightenment. And I think this, ah, I will even go a step further here. And here we come with all that rhetorical bullshit of mine. You know, like uh, Hegel, are we dead? Who is dead? My conclusion is we are all dead, so let's stop this debate. That uh, already with Habermas is clear, and I'm so sorry, this is the 
topic which really interests me philosophically. That's my forthcoming debate. I'm now in dialogue, I mean, friendly. We exchange uh, emails sometimes. She attacked me, but respectfully. I answer Robert Pippin, you know. For me, she is too close to Habermas in this sense that she wants to Kantianize Hegel to make him too much of a simple Enlightenment guy. Although, didn't you write a book on Kant or whatever? No, sorry, I'm confusing you with, ah, with you, yeah, yeah. Now I will be a white male chauvinist racist. Who cares? You are all the same, you know, and so who cares? <laughs> no, sorry, seriously. The important thing here is the following one, that, uh, that uh, even if you want to see the state of Hegel debate today, I advise you to read, uh, 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 you can get it for free on, uh, on, on the web, and I like this gesture. Uh, uh, Bob, Robert Brandom offered it there. His detailed 500 pages reading of Hegel's phenomenology. It's a kind of a manifesto of uh, this, uh, let's call it, I don't know, Kantianized Habermasians. He tries to renormalize Hegel take away all these paradoxes which sound too suspicious, irrationalist. And, and uh, 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 I, I think it's so tragically clear that what already Adorno is doing is that, how should I put it? This is, no, sorry, Adorno, I'm sorry, Habermas. You know, his basic reproach to dialectic, their Aufklärung, is what is missing there is a positive normative foundation. But as a good Hegelian, Adorno knew it that precisely this, you cannot do it. Because precisely, and this is what, if we will have time today, which I more and more doubt <laughs> towards the end, I wanted to return to, uh, the vision of a revolution or social change in Hegel, it's a much more refined than it may appear. Let's Special, uh, yeah, with Pippin, I cannot resist a friendly joke. He laughed when I told it to him. Uh, I thought I'm dreaming when I opened up some New York Times issue and saw, do you know that these days, isn't there a new musical on Broadway called Pippin? <laughs> Literally, the same name. It's a big production. It's not off-off-Broadway. It's the real Broadway. And I couldn't resist when you mentioned Sound of Music, telling him that I can imagine at the beginning, you know, you know, uh, uh, somebody dressed like Pippin runs across and said, the hills are alive by the sound of rational argumentation or whatever, <laughs> discursive <laughs> argumentation, no? Uh, so uh, again, uh, I think that we need here a return to a more radical Hegel. What do we find in Hegel? So uh, you don't need me anymore. Sorry? You don't Did need me anymore. Did you live under the illusion that I ever needed you? I thought I would, yes, yes. I have documents I'm so sorry, to but prove you know, it. Like, click, click, awaken from hypnotic dream and accept All right, reality. Good. So no, you're, but, okay. you're so on your I way have, now, to now language. Now so that I deal with you in an extremely friendly way, I will say now something that for me, and I'm sincere, when you say this to a person, you are either extremely aggressive or you can say this only to a true friend. You know, once we have a debate here, 
I don't know if you remember. And then I, uh, uh, I went to a cafeteria, and you were there. So I say, let's get rid of that bitch. So I went with friends to another cafeteria here. You were again there. And it happens two more times. And you know what I told her then? You remind me of that toilet, you know. No matter how often you flush the water, the sheet always. <laughs> and then we embrace. This was love, you know, that you I know, it's true love. <laughs> no. It, no, then I you mean, went to my favorite topos. OK, I'm sorry. but. No, but quite seriously, don't you see? It's, it's the same with Benjamin. That's another. So you see my point. Uh, I don't accept the defense line of Heideggerians, which is to put it simply, yes, it's disgusting, Heidegger's anti-Semitic remarks. But if you erase them, ignore them, the whole edifice remains. Well, as a good Hegelian, and you know what Hegel says, how wonderful he plays with the literal pseudo-etymological, probably, meaning of the word beispiel, what comes by play. Like, the whole Hegelian point, and this is Hegel's materialism, anti-Platonism, is that uh, exam, even with Plato, it's more complex, but basically, Hegel's point is this one. Examples are never just examples in the sense of you have a certain ideal purity, and then, you know, our finite, vulgar examples never can reach to it. No, examples subvert always what they are examples of. That's Hegel's dialectical critique. Examples mean you have a certain notion, and you just stage it in an example. That's what Hegel does, for example, in the most elementary way when he uh, criticizes or analyzes uh, asketism in Phenomenologie des Geistes, you know. He looks at uh, the bodily practice of a, an, as an ascetic person and claims, but he, in his obsession with his body, how to discipline and so on, he does the exact opposite of what? Now, next point that you should know, and I agree, I read your, is that it's not only Kant against Hegel. The, the, the gap is already in Kant himself. Kant is a much more, you know, almost it sounds sometimes when you read these naive Enlightenment guys as if Kant was still a good guy, clear, benevolent Enlightenment, and then this crazy, dark, uh, obscure metaphysician Schelling, Hegel, comment. No, no, with Kant already, but I don't have time to do this, of course, today. Things are much more complex. Another example uh, of this renormalization of critical tradition is, for me, the ongoing, but it's a little bit disappearing today, it was more actual some five, ten, 15 years ago, 10, uh, the debate with Walter Benjamin. Those politically correct bullshitters have one problem. Benjamin is sacred, no? He must be right. So what to do with divine violence, you know? So we have all the effort from Homi Baba here and there to somehow reread divine violence as, you know, he didn't really mean it, there is no blood in it, just some kind of inner radical shift where nobody is hurt and so on. I'm sorry to tell you, no. My good friend, Palestinian, from, from Israel, this, how do you call them? 
49 Palestinians who remained his family there, Sami Khatib, I think. He is now organizing, it's a historical event. That's how you find, you fight both anti-Semitism and, and uh, bad Zionism today. It's an ingenious idea. We are organizing uh, around the 10th of December a big Benjamin conference in Ramallah. And the beauty is that me and my friend Udi Aloni put great effort into it. Not to turn it into just another free Palestine bullshit, you know. Because in this way you humiliate also Palestinians. The whole point is to treat also Palestinians like, like why not do a purely academic event there? Okay, this guy, Sami Katip, showed me some memoirs on Benjamin when they kind of ruined this sublime reading, you know, of divine violence. Somebody asked, and he has detailed in a debate, a friend of Benjamin in 36, like, how would you today, because you know, Zurkirchik uh, der Gewalt is an early text, I think early 20s, no? like now, 15 years later, how would, you, uh, uh, how would you reconsider today divine violence, no? what it is? And I'm sorry to tell you, okay, this was private conversation, he probably wouldn't have, he said he uses this term, how do you call them, ox, what is a castrated bull? Uh, ox, yes, he said, geschlachtet. It means the enemy should be geschlachted like an ox in a slaughterhouse and so on. So uh, what does this mean? Is Benjamin there advocating some purges and so on? No, I think it's a risky move. I wonder if those, and no, no cynical ambiguity intended here. I mean it literally. There are in this room, I'm sure, people who know Benjamin better than me. I wonder if they would agree. What if the mistake is to consider that since it's divine violence, it must be something noble or ennobling, pure? What if Benjamin meant something horrible, something that's not pleasant? You know what I mean by this? For example, the idea came to me recently. All those, because Benjamin says something very precise. He says that, you know, two key definitions. First, divine violence is a means instrument without goal. You know, it's not instrumental in the sense that, which is why I think in his polemic against me, brutal, the guy whom, whose name I will not mention because for me he falls into the category of, you know, in Harry Potter, Voldemort, how he is called. The one whose name shouldn't be pronounced. Okay, quickly, Simon Critchley, no? <laughs> he, he attacks me there, claiming that the usual reproach, I want some brutal violence, but I don't see that. He gives, and then he gives the exactly wrong, his idea is, it's a typical liberal reading, it means you have to think heavily, and if there is really no other way to achieve your goal, then selectively you can be a little bit violent or whatever. But my God, this is precisely what Benjamin explicitly opposes. He says, first, it's an instrument without aim, goal. Second point, he says that it's not, again, a means uh, to do something, but it just displays some attitude, some, it's not a good term what I use, but kind of a bears witness 
of some stance. And I think that if we are looking for examples of this today, let's say all those, mostly they were civilized discussion, uh, sorry, uh, demonstration, but you remember Ferguson and all those other places when blacks demonstrated. Sometimes it did become violent. I think it was exactly this. It was not, okay, mostly it was with a certain goal, you know, like justice, no more cop killings, I mean, cops doing the killing. But there was also an element of this explosion, like just you display your age, and an even better example, I claim, would have been, do you remember, my God, time passes, it's already some five, six years ago, I think, those car burnings in the suburbs of Paris. This is, I think, divine violence at its purest. I was there even, I studied them. First, uh, uh, liberal fanatics claimed, oh, Islam fundamentalism. Then they were shocked to learn that the first thing that they burned were mosques and <laughs> schools for them. So it was a kind of a explosion of violence without any program, not even the Muslim fundamentalist program, without, uh, this, uh, so what's my point here? It's not, a, there is nothing pleasant in it. Like, if I would have been there, I would probably run away like a rabbit, you know. Like, it was dangerous to be there. My point is just a more refined mind. I'm not saying now we should celebrate them. Why not? Fuck it. Maybe police should intervene there. But at the same time, it's a refined point. We cannot just simply condemn it. Of course, we should like, try to limit it and so on. But we have to recognize in it a certain, uh, the violent explosion of a certain deadlock, if I may put it like this. And I think that along those lines, I am tempted to uh, rehabilitate even Benjamin. And Benjamin is also a big problem for this uh, uh, Habermasian tradition. So again, this is the crucial thing, I think, that the problem is not really Heidegger. It's even, I don't know how it is here in the States, but I tell you, I know it's like this in England and in uh, Germany. It's really, this anti-Heidegger campaign now, it's really an extremely disgusting, brutal power struggle for who will control one third of the academia? Wait, what, what, what do we mean by this? So my friends told me, maybe I'm wrong, that vaguely in Germany, philosophy departments, two thirds are cognitivist brain scientists. No, okay, they are what they are. You can prevent that. Now the problem is who will control that remaining third? No, and mostly some, not only Habermas, this vague Habermasian progressism they are terribly afraid that what they call this French irrationalism and so on will invade. That's why take a philosopher like, okay, sometimes I like him, but I totally disagree with him, Peter Sloterdijk. Do you know how marginalized he is? I think he still teaches in, in Karlsruhe at the ZKM. He simply cannot penetrate a serious big institution. And it's the same story in France for decades. Look at them. Okay, Foucault was lucky at the end. And in, interestingly, Alain Badiou also. 
go to Ecole Normale Supérieure. But uh, look at, for example, I don't know, Deleuze, Vincennes, and then Saint-Denis, totally marginalized, and so on. You know, we tend to forget what is philosophy as a state apparatus. Philosophy, and that's the tragic split in France, you maybe find, find it at its purest. You have this, you may agree with them or not, these big names, public intellectuals, Lacan, uh, uh, I don't know, Lacan, uh, uh, Deleuze, and so on. But they were extremely marginalized, practically totally excluded from academic things. And here, to return to you, we should recall that it was similar with Nietzsche. You know, the reaction, although Nietzsche was fashionable in some reactionary circles, but the neo-Kantian uh, establishment treated Nietzsche as a worthless cultural critic, uh, 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 fashionable phenomenon. Well, I'm sorry to tell you, maybe, but Nietzsche is today still fashionable, and who, kn who knows about those neo-Kantians and so on. So again, uh, this is, for me, the big problem today. That's why I'm saying back to Hegel, because, OK, I will jump up and down now. I'll rather improvise, elaborate this point, as I already did it in some of my books. I claim that I still remain in some sense. In what sense? Fuck you, read my books. I will not lose time now. Uh, a communist. But a communist absolutely without illusions. I think the first task of being a communist, the, the main reason I stick to the term communism is to avoid the term socialism. Because here, at least, I still agree with my good friend Badiou, who claims, and he's not original here, every radical leftist thinker would agree with this, that a true concept divides. It allows you to draw a line of division. This is our side. We are fighting them. And this is why I have, there is in my heart, a special hatred, apart from hatred to you, uh, against uh, the term, like many ex-communist uh, 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 parties, now like to rename themselves, as in Germany, PDS, Partei der Demokratik, no, Democratic Socialism. I can understand this, maybe even support it as a moment of political opportunism. But I think, theoretically, it's exactly the wrong thing to do. First, because none of the terms distinguishes. This doesn't mean that I'm some kind of secretly totalitarian anti-democrat. I'm just saying, and this is for me an obvious fact, to say I fight for democracy is meaningless today if you don't add quite many further specifications. Like, you Americans, but we Europeans were even more guilty in this, you invaded Iraq. No, I'm here extremely brutal realist. Why not if it would have worked? Like, you get rid of a dictator there. I have no illusions about Saddam. But what's the result? Are you aware what you did there? First. Are you aware that Syria and Iraq are the, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I'm right, at least according to Wikipedia where I checked, <laughs> the uh, only two 
Middle East Arab countries with Muslim majority, which were at least nominally, but this wasn't totally meaningless, uh, 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 secular. Secular in the sense that Islam was not official religion. And for example, in Iraq, maybe you, if you are old enough, you remember the guy Tariq Aziz, the public speaker, as it were, foreign minister of Saddam. He was a Christian, did you know this? And it was similar with, with Assad regime. I, I have no mercy neither for Assad nor for, uh, uh, of course, Saddam. But I just want to, re to make you realize this. OK, so ironically, but you are a Christian country in some sense, majority. So a Christian country intervenes into Iraq to get the people there rid of uh, evil dictator and to bring uh, freedom, more secularism, and greater rights to women, many American feminists. This is a dark chapter of American feminism uh, supported intervention on this account. My answer is, if you really want this, then intervene into Saudi Arabia, you know, because today's uh, Iran is a feminist paradise compared to uh, Saudi Arabia. But the point is this one. Now, what's the result? When America, United States occupied Iraq, they disbanded Saddam's army, and then the whole public law and order structure vacillated, didn't function. Who took over? Mostly uh, Islamic militias. And the result is, you know what? There were, at that point, correct me if I'm wrong, but again, according to a well-known scientific source called Wikipedia, <laughs> I should be at least, there were around 2 million Christians in Saddam's Iraq, which survived all the tribulations of thousands of years. Now, there is only a tiny percentage of them, like at least three quarters of them left, left, the, left the country. B, because Sadat, nonetheless, I'm not saying this in any way justified him, but he, before he became crazy, he somehow played a secular card. Women were emancipated, public posts. This, the situation of women is regressed terribly. So isn't this a nice moment of irony? A freedom-loving Christian country, you invade Iraq, to bring freedom. The main political result is that much less secularism, Christians almost <laughs> disappeared, much less rights to women, and so on and so on. And that's my problem with, for example, uh, also Libya, when another philosopher who is, for me, even worse than the above mentioned, uh, the one whose name shouldn't be mentioned, Bernard-André Lévy, you know, this was his war. He called Sarkozy, blah, blah. And it's not that now I'm a wise, as we say in Europe, after the battle, everyone can play a wise general. No, many of my French friends draw attention to this. Are we aware what will happen? And they were right. I mean, Libya is now, uh, how do you call it, rogue, failed state, and so on. You know, so again, uh, okay, let me now, uh, go uh, develop this, yes, uh, violence and so on. 
uh, now I'm a little bit, okay, let, let me go in this uh, direction. Maybe this is more interesting than all the other bullshit. Uh, 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 you, uh, yes, just to finish the introduction, one hour into the talk, no, another conclusion. Uh, uh, I, the, the point that I wanted to make with this, what Hegel and so on, is first, I wanted to, as someone who is nonetheless influenced by psychoanalysis and so on, I think that in order to really use productively psychoanalysis today, in order to understand ideological phenomena, one has to get rid of many, many stupid cliches about psychoanalysis. The main are two, one, and I rely here on, uh, I don't like him otherwise, but Adam Phillips, to be a male chauvinist, the ex-boyfriend of Jacqueline Rose, if this gives you some coordinates. In some journal, I think it's the Paris Review or whatever, recently it appeared a long interview of him by, done by Paul Holdengraber, the New York Public Library guy. And there, nonetheless, Adam Phillips says something wonderful about psychoanalytic practice. He said there are two cliches about psychoanalysis which should be dropped. One is psychoanalysis is a form of self-knowledge, that it's the radical version of this ancient Greek bullshit, know yourself, and so on. And second point, that the aim of psychoanalysis is to ease, diminish your suffering. I mean, this seems absolutely obvious. You suffer, trauma, symptoms, whatever. Psychoanalysis gives you a deeper understanding of yourself. And once you understand the causes, as Freud put it, at least if there still is suffering, it's just simple, banal suffering, not suffering caused by ignorance and so on and so on. Uh, Adam Phillips, in a wonderful way, I think that's my dream, that Adorno would have loved this, uh, reject both. He said, no, this obsessive desire to know yourself is in itself a pathology. But wait a minute, he's not a new ager. His point is not this pseudo-Buddhist bullshit, like, you know, don't think, just do it spontaneously, and so on. No, for him, the opposition of knowing yourself is not just act intuitively. It's something different. His point is, instead of probing into yourself, dedicate yourself to an external cause. You are not cured when you are satisfied, oh my God, now I can tell a complete story about myself, I know it. But when you simply, you don't matter to yourself, you fight for something. It can be progressive politics, you are a fanatical artist, scientist, politician, inventor, lover, whatever you want. But this is the point that the goal of psychoanalysis is precisely to bring you to the point where you can finally forget about that piece of bullshit that is yourself or myself <laughs> and finally work for a cause. And second thing, here Adam Phillips, Phillips is even more refined. Uh, he says, 
a wonderful thing. My God, that Hegelian spirit. He says that because he's also a practicing analyst. And he says that when, uh, a pay, when he sees that after a session, 50 minutes, he's not this Lacanian cheater, but the <laughs> traditional one, no? That although I must say I understand Lacan, I never could even imagine myself being an analyst, but I would certainly be for short sessions, and you can imagine why. Can you even imagine me listening in patience to, to another person for more than one minute or two? You already suffered me, you know? Okay, but let's go on. So his point is that when a patient obviously feels better relaxed, that he, as analyst, Adam Phillips, gets into total panic. Oh my God, what did I do wrong? And so on. And then, but no, it's not just the patient should suffer, but he, provides a wonderfully correct formulation, Adam Phillips, when he says, and it's basically a restatement of that previous point about dedicating yourself to some cause. He says that the point is not to ease your suffering. The point is that a good analytic treatment should enable you to simply move out of these categories. Do I suffer? Do I have pleasures? Am I enjoying life? And to discover that there are things, noble things, quite naively, like, I don't know, great scientific word, love, whatever, which are much more important than your suffering or pleasure, you know? And I think this is the correct reading of psychoanalysis. It's absolutely not this spiritual self-examination, which is why I hate life. <laughs> I'm sorry, I will turn it off. I wanted to blame somebody else, but you know, I have to blame the other in me, the foreigner in me. <laughs> okay, so let's go on. This is why, now comes the last dirty part, but don't be afraid, it's I am the butt of the joke. Uh, my, my mother and uh, uh, maternal grandfather, maternal, yes, grandfather all died of colonoscopy cancer, so I have to do that misfortunate thing of every three, four years to do colonoscopy to blah, blah. Okay, the point is this one. I will not go, don't be afraid. I will not show you some clips. <laughs> but that will be my point, because I was so shocked. Probably it happens here the same. This is called the modern medicine. At the end, the doctor gave me, you know, a small DVD, like, you know. And I asked, why is he giving this to me? Does he think that I will invite friends, forget about a nice blockbuster, why don't we look the inside of my ass or whatever, you know? That's what's wrong about it. I don't want to know the inside of myself. I don't want to know it uh, uh, psychologically and bodily even less. And it's wonderful when you spoke about disgust. Disgust is basically that moment when insight and you know when the disgust is not radical otherness. Disgust is when this thin skin or whatever line of separation breaks down and the insight comes outside. That's the moment of disgust. Which is, and now, let's go further. Let's do some problematic, but very benevolent political thinking. Uh, you know what I will do? Uh, if some of you are here somehow connected, what I already promised to my student with Lindsay or Das Beach or uh, Avital, uh, 
I feel bad because I wanted to deliver something, but obviously I will not have time. So again, already I promised to my students and I promise it here. Lindsay or Avital, I will send them a file with what I wanted to say, but obviously that's life. So you will get it if you want, of course. Sorry? You mean that CD? <laughs> if you give me yours, but from, <laughs> but from both sides, not just anal, but okay, let's not go, let's not go. Ha ha, I beat you. I was more vulgar than you. <laughs> Sorry, now quite seriously. Here I'm a partisan of Judeo-Christian tradition. Don't be afraid. I mean, I'm radically atheist and so on. But I was always intrigued by the notion of neighbor. And I think Freud was deeply right that the great thing about Judeo-Christian tradition is that neighbor is not what we usually refer to as the fellow man, you know, like the guy who is like us. No, the most elementary experience of a neighbor is there is a guy maybe even very close to you, wife, son, mother, and you think you know him or her. And all of a sudden, he or she or it a monster, they are called children, and I have more and more from my own experience the idea that children between four and six are the closest we can come to Kantian notion of diabolical evil, but that's another <laughs> point. No, seriously. Uh, uh, you know, you encounter a neighbor when all of a sudden you discover that person whom you think you know does something it may be a tiny thing, but something terrifying that totally ruins your familiar image of him or her. You know, like, I don't know. You see their sentimental examples, I'm sorry. Uh, a, a small kid, and he just, when nobody is looking, kicks that kid almost. But, but something absolutely, at that point when you ask yourself, my God, did I know that person at all or not? At that point you discover the neighbor. Which is why, I'm sorry if I repeat this example and some of you know it, which is why uh, uh, there is some popular novel and movie about a neighbor. It is Stephen King's novel, I didn't even like it, but as an example, Shining. The whole point is that it's a normal family, fellow men. And the whole point is how father gradually turns into a neighbor, as it were. This is why, incidentally, Stephen King was right when he, he says, okay, it's a well-made movie, but there is one mega mistake. They never should have given the leading role to Jack Nicholson. You know why? They were right. Because the whole point is that you have a kind, normal guy who gradually becomes a neighbor. But let's be serious. The moment Jack Nicholson <laughs> enters the stage, it's there. There is no surprise, you know. You just wait. When will he finally draw the knife and whatever, you know, or whatever? Uh, even, with, uh, uh, even, with, even, even with children, you discover this. Like, my son is younger one, the older also, is definitely a neighbor to me. Like, once I was mad at him in a friendly way, and I shouted at him, and I shouted at him, a Serbo-Croat, Serb rather, a vulgar, how do you call it, shimp word, because we Slovenes are a nasty nation, and this is very dangerous. We don't have our own 
dirty work. We have to borrow them. So I shouted at him, ye body pass matter, which means, if I translate it, let the dog fuck your mother. <laughs> it's ordinary. But then my son become a neighbor. You know what was his answer? It's important, you will see why. At that point, he was 14 years old. Instantly, without reflection, he told me, but it already happened, that's how I was born. Like, <laughs> I was the dog, you know. <laughs> I, mean, I admired him because it wasn't like, oh my God, uh, what should I say? Instant answer. Okay, then he did something which was very flattering for me but somehow ruined the effect and made me. Because immediately after that, he looked at me with a smile of complicity and said, Father, did I say this well? You know, <laughs> it was so tragic, you know, like he really wanted to. And I, I almost cried, like I thought for a moment, you are a true neighbor, evil, and so on. And now you are just another good guy. <laughs> so, but no, now let's go serious into this. Uh, back to Pippin. He wrote an interesting book on Western, and uh, I often disagree with his, you know, Pippin shares this feature up to a point, I claim, with uh, Adorno. When he does his big, long books on Hegel, they are so-so. But some of his shorter collection of essays especially dealing with cultural topics are very, for example, I absolutely love his book on Henry James. He's reading on Henry James, and then he did a book, I forgot the title, uh, how can you not admire this? Hegelian reading of great westerns. It's Searchers, Red River, and so on. And there he does a wonderful reading of the one who is, again, the category of uh, he, it was now voted, um, it's among the 10 greatest films of all time, sight and sound, sound if, if this means anything. But uh, you know the story, I will not bore you with, because it's one of the American archetypes. You know that basically he knows it. This is not a criticism that, uh, how do you pronounce it here? Scorsese, Scorsese. Yes, it reminds how yeah, Italian or American, but that uh, the, the taxi driver is basically a remake of Searchers, no, basically. The violent hero trying to redeem, save the endangered girl. But you, the problem, you know what? Indians, Native Americans, I call them Indians for well-known reasons. They convinced me. You know my joke, I always repeat it. They hate all that I know. American, Native Americans hate to be called Native Americans because they told me, what does it mean? We are Native Americans and you are what? Cultural Americans or what? And okay, I repeat my old joke. Maybe you know what was their answer then. They said, we much prefer to be called Indians because in this way, at least our name is a monument to white men's stupidity, you know, who thought <laughs> they are in India. Okay, let me go on. Indians, Native Americans uh, kill his family or whatever, kidnapped the girl, and for years, searchers, the two of them, he and his younger friend, nephew, whatever, are looking for a girl who, growing older, becomes Natalie Wood. This is one of her early roles. And then, uh, till the end of the movie, I think he's called Nathan in the film, John Wayne is just a brutal avenger. He wants to, not so much to save her as to kill her. He says this, like, she, now, she, she was living with that uh, Native American tribe for years, and then 
He gives a wonderful analysis here, Pippin. What happens at the end, and their film is more progressive, the film Searchers. Uh, when the army attacks the camp, kills almost all of them, you see John Wayne character is beginning to doubt, then the girl runs away. He runs on a horse after her, catches her, and at that point, the miracle happens. Instead of killing her, he takes her up and takes her home. What is miracle? That's the beauty. It's not that all of us, it's not this multicultural bullshit, we are all humans, you know, like he suddenly discovers that, my God, she's nonetheless a warm human being or whatever. Uh, um, people focused, and you, if you have the movie on CD or download it or whatever, you can check this. When he approaches her just before grabbing her up, you see, and this almost convinced me that maybe John Wayne here and there was a real actor, you know? You see a strange perplexity, perplexion in his face. Like, till that, he th thought he knew who he is. Just brutal avenger. At that point, so the point is not that he becomes a good guy. Oh, no, we are all human. But he becomes a neighbor to himself. He is no longer a trans. He discovers, as it were, the abyss of subjectivity in himself. And that's what makes him keeping the girl alive. And that's, I think, a wonderful not reading which avoids this standard humanist <laughs> approach. And uh, now I want to propose this maybe as a general formula of how to fight racism today. I'm tired of this, we are all humans, let's respect each, each other's culture and so on. To quote my personal half-friend, theoretical, of course, philosophical enemy, but nonetheless, from time to time he says something interesting, Peter Sloterdijk, he said, we don't need today more understanding, mutual. We need a new code of discretion, which doesn't mean this cold regulation and so on, but like, that's my formula. Probably thousands of other people already so, uh, produced it. Like, uh, how can we understand others when we don't even understand ourselves? You know what I mean? Like, we have to do what, my God, if that idiot John Way can do it, I hope we could, you know? <laughs> to, to experience this abyss in ourselves, and this is what Hegel calls the, uh, this night of the world, abyss of subjectivity, and also with the other, and at this level to accept this radical abyss of the other, ethnic other, even in love. Alain Badiou, at least here we should agree with him, when he explodes against this chip, even with Wagner it's much more complex. Uh, uh, Pseudo-Wagnerian idea, Tristan und Isolde, you know, the ultimate love, we are no longer two, we are one, we, I don't know what, uh, immerse ourselves. I mean, if you, believe this bullshit, then you should read some good interpretations, and I don't mean my interpretation, I plagiarized others, of Wagner and other operas, where you can see how, just listen carefully to music and to words of Tristan, Wagner's Tristan, and you will see this is not what happens at all at the end of Tristan. They don't die together. It's First Tristan, then Isolde, it's a totally missed encounter, 
And I think the correct reading is that of Jean-Pierre Ponel. He's staging where he reached the appearance of Isolde as just a hallucination of the dying Tristan. And a friend of mine criticized me in Slovene, unfortunately, only claiming, because I read Tristan in my second death of opera with Madden Dollar book, I criticize uh, 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 I, sorry, I read in this way Tristan against what I claim is nonetheless this standard, let's die together. And I give as an example the finale of Norma, where the final duo is Moriam insieme. A young Slovene aggressive philosopher, I love him because his point was to ruin me theoretically, we are friends, developed in a wonderful way how if you look at it really closely, musically, and at the words. You see that, okay, formally they do die together, but each has his, her own fantasy, which is totally different. Absolutely, this doesn't happen, that like, oh, we are immersed into the same primordial abyss together. And here we come back to, but you, and although I have problem with certain type of poets, but you will know this better, didn't even Rilke said something similar, like in true love, you precisely, only in true love even, you experience this abyssal otherness of the other. True love is proximity, but I'm really close to the other when I discern this radical otherness in the other. And that, that's true love. True love is not we are one and so on. So what I'm saying, back to all these problems with racism that we have today and so on, you know that we have today, and this brought me into a lot of trouble. When I check the internet, I don't do it regularly, but from time to time my friends draw my attention to the fact how, oh, you are again attacked as now in late time. Once I was attacked at anti-Semite, then I was attacked at justifying Arab terrorism, then I was attacked, I love this, for the same book of the most perfidious Zionist propaganda, now the last attacks are that, that I am a, a fascist European uh, nationalist, anti-immigrant, and so on and so on. Maybe it's true, but I'm tempted to defend myself here as a Hegelian. Why? Let me go into it. Uh, you know, it's in Europe now, we have, and I developed this in that article in these times, we have this, uh, on the one hand, of course, anti-immigrants who claim all these immigrants are a threat to European Christian identity, blah, blah, and all those paranoiac theories. It's not a spontaneous event. It's all planned by enemies of Europe and so on and so on. Well, frankly, even in this, there is a moment of truth, I claim. Don't kill me. I'm not now a European. Uh, uh, you know in what sense? Isn't there something strange happening with these refugees? Look. We have poor Middle East countries, relatively poor. Egypt, Turkey, Iran. Each of them received one to two million immigrants. We have Europe, which is definitely more wealthy, and it's so-so, relatively open. Then we have the really rich countries, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Kuwait, Emirates. You know how many refugees they received? Zero. Zero. And it's absolutely disgusting, I claim, because first, they are culturally much closer. You know, like Saudi Arabia even cannot claim, oh, it's a civil war there, we want to remain 
a conservative country or whatever. First, Saudi Arabia is not a conservative country. Maybe they play this game theologically, but socially, it's a kind of a, a big capital mafia, gangster family. It's all about American money, oil, reinvesting it. It's the most speculative capital modern country in this sense. So they, or uh, all those rich countries, their official politics is not even one, although not only most of the refugees are Sunnis, more than Shias, so religiously they are the same. Even worse, at least in Syria, it's clear that, it's not even secret, that uh, Saudi Arabia together with Turkey is supporting the rebels and so on, so you cannot say, sorry, this wasn't our problem, why should we take the refugees? No, they play a key role in creating the crisis in Syria. So, but my point is not so much this, my point is, and this brought me all the trouble, opposed to those whom, of course, I oppose, those uh, European cultural jerks, you know, like who threat to Christian identity and so on and so on. The formula to which I stick all the time here for decades is, of course, I am for European values, but they are really threatened by those anti-immigrant. Like, imagine Europe where Marine Le Pen is in power in England, where I don't know who you keep in, in sorry, in uh, France, you keep in England, and so on. That would have been really the end of Europe, I think, no? But uh, there is another point here. Then we get these left liberals, and those I oppose, because I think it's a politically false, hypocritical position. Their attitude is first, they accept this infinite self flagellation, how do you call it, European masochist criticism. We are guilty, totally. So we should totally open our borders and so on and so on. I claim that, uh, yes, I developed this in a very traditional Marxist way. Not, not Europe, but let's say today's economic, mostly economic neocolonialism is clearly the main cause of this great uh, flow of refugees. Because, again, without American intervention in Iraq, no ISIS, because ISIS is a reaction to, you know, one of the beautiful things that United States did in Iraq is the result of their intervention was that the pro-Iranian Shias are now the predominating force. So another big success of American politics. Why don't we give uh, as, as, uh, uh, as a present to our Iranian friends, Iraq, another country, no? But, uh, uh, and incidentally, I don't have time to go into it, but I, I'm so unsure what is this ISIS. I don't want to be, usually I try to avoid this stupid paranoia, you know, like September 11th was really an, you know, this total racism, anti-Semitism, in the sense of, you know, this stupid, like, all the Jews got a message two days before, don't go on 11 of September to Twin Towers, and so on, all that bullshit. But with ISIS, things are the least, one can say, extremely obscure. I'm not sure who, what is behind it, but what I want to say is this. Yes, I totally accept this argumentation. Either it's this, warfare interventions there in Libya, or it's simply economic neo-colonialism. Like, what's going on, for example, in 
Central African Republic, Alemba, you drew my attention to it. The official story is this one, another ethnic warfare between the Christian majority and on northeast of the country, Muslim minority. And again, wild locals, we Europeans, should we intervene or not? Ha, ha, ha. We know the story now, but it's totally ignored in our media. But I believe the story for the simple reason Alain Badiou told me this and showed me the clips. You know, he learned the story from, uh, from Le Figaro, which is <laughs> the right-wing daily, but just they report a small item. Yeah, unfortunately, they discovered oil in the Muslim northeast of the country. The whole of country was being gradually colonized by the Chinese. So this well, explosion of old ethnic passions, fuck you, it was simply, uh, it was strictly triggered by the conflict of economic neocolonial interest between China and France. Even you, United States, I don't always blame you. You know, we li really live in multicentric world today, which is as much as this is difficult to accept for some leftists, but when there is some horrible thing going on in the world, you are not automatically the guilty part. You know what, like, I wish all the be best to the Chinese, but unfortunately I must tell you, what Chinese are doing in many African countries, or in Myanmar, ex-Burma, and so on. Well, if the term economic colonialism has any meaning, this is what they are doing there. Even I remember, I don't know, sorry if I repeat myself, I was at some subversive festival in Zagreb, capital of Croatia, a couple of years ago, two years ago, just before Varoufakis wasn't yet a minister, and there was some crazy guy, leftist sociologist, who claimed uh, 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 that European poor countries who are now screwed by Germany, they should delink from Europe and open up to, like he advised this to Greeks, you know, if Syriza win, step out of European Union, open up yourself to Russia and China. Yeah, good luck, yeah, yeah. They, because they said, uh, he said, okay, they are not maybe democratic, but at least they will not force upon you your ideology, which means basically they like local dictators which, with whom it is. But then there were some 50, 100 Greeks in the hall who just started to laugh like crazy. And then why? Because uh, then they told me, you know that uh, uh, Chinese tried to buy the port of Piraeus and they did something there that no Western colonialist, imperialist dares to do it today. They did it so brutally. They fired half of the people, they find some legal, found some legal loophole to prevent any trade union. So just don't mention to Syriza progressive Chinese. As to the Russians, yes, Tsipras did play this game a little bit. But again, privately, when I met him in Zagreb, he told me no illusions about Putin. He told me, Russians did send a delegation, no? And they told him, okay, if you do Grexit, we can give you tens of billions to survive, but, and but was a pretty brutal but. First, you should allow us to buy all those remaining state companies like Telecom, which still somehow work, and B, a big, nice, juicy Greek island for 100 years as our military base, and so on. You know, so no illusions here. So again, 
let's make this first cl point clear. I'm not claiming we Europeans are clean here. We are absolutely, but not only us, we Chinese, uh, United States are absolutely responsible for this vague of refugees. Uh, uh, the problem is, uh, no, there is no problem. This simply is a fact. Uh, the, the problem is this one, how to react to it. I was so attacked as a racist when I noticed that, and in Slovenia, I met them, the refugees, and I respect this. I don't blame them for this, but it's almost tragic how they are possessed with a certain vision, how should I put it? For example, we Slovenes are not a rich country, but also not terribly poor, like our per capita is now around 30,000. Well, this is not ultra poverty, no? And, you know, dozens of refugees intervened by, interviewed, sorry, by our TV cameras said, we don't like this country, it's too poor. Norway, Norway, we want Norway. <laughs> and at the same time, all of them repeated the same formula, like, we, I know what I want. Norway government will give me a big apartment. They will, uh, they will provide uh, uh, university uh, education for my children. I know one of my sons should become a surgeon. The other one should become whatever, and so on and so on. Well, my silicon answer was three quarters of Slovenes would like the same. No, but I don't blame them for that. But the tragedy is that. They don't get it that their dream is, for strictly formal reasons, impossible. Impossible in this sense. At the same time, uh, yeah, that's the irony. Whenever authorities in Slovenia, Croatia, whenever try to, uh, often they do it in a brutal way, and I protested against it. But often they just said, okay, we allow you to enter, just please to organize uh, 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 provisions, food, medical help. My God, we have to register you, no? And then they shout usually, no, we are not cattle, we are humans, we want freedom. But fuck you, you want this freedom and then you want to go to Norway. I don't think there is a country in the world, because I'm sorry to tell you, but that's how modern, if it still works, welfare state functions. Everyone is totally registered with all your problems and so on, because that's how the state takes care of you. So to go back to this, what am I saying? Should we not allow them to enter? No, my problem is, my solution is, along the lines of Fred Jameson's wonderful text, this mad text, now it's already being in the process, it will appear soon by Verso, a volume of Fred Jameson replies to him and then his short reply, an American utopia, where he claims that the only American chance of its madness, of radical change, communism, is militarization. And I claim maybe this would be, a, to the shock of my leftist friends, I claim a military solution would have worked. Not in this bad sense, you know. You, but the only way to resolve the crisis is to establish some refugee, how would we call them, reception camps in the places where you still can do it, on the coast of Syria, Lebanon, Turkey, and so on, and then to somehow organize the movement. No? 
I mean, I don't see any, first, I don't see Europe should fully admit its duty. I pose no doubt here. I just emphasize, and here I agree with Habermas, who said that he's sick and tired with this uh, false, how should I call it, sentimentalization. Where is our humanity? Where is our empathy? No, to provoke things, one TV station, they stopped me on the street. I ordered that book, got them in Slovenia. They asked me, would you accept a refugee family into your apartment? I told them, no, I hate people other in my apartment. I even don't like to have my own family in my apartment. <laughs> but I said, I know we are, the problem is not to love them. The problem is simple, full ethical responsibility. If you take half of my money that I earn, and I don't earn as much as maybe it appeared, and I immediately accept that. Don't sentimentalize it. And Havelas were right, where he says, this Europe is deeply responsible for this. This is, uh, this is why it's Europe's duty but to do it. But I think without this bullshit, you know, open the borders and so on, Yes, open the borders, but in an organized way. There are, now comes the really evil part. Uh, the problem is this one, which they embody it, the refugees. Again, they want, Euro and it's a legitimate dream, but that's the problem. All dreams of emancipation are inconsistent and you have to move further. First step. They want to maintain their cultural identity and fully participate in a European welfare state. I claim for theoretical reasons, this doesn't work. That's where I don't believe in multiculturalism. Not in the sense because our culture is uh, higher and so on. My problem is this one. And for this, I'm now proclaimed, I don't know, secret fascist right winger. You know, uh, the problem with multiculturalism is that it relies on a certain liberal legalistic dream which simply doesn't work. The idea is each community can maintain, if it wants, of course, it can also mix with others, its own way of life. The state just has to guarantee the, how should I call it, peaceful coexistence without violence and so on. I claim this absolutely doesn't and cannot work for the simple reason that every cultural identity is never just about yourself, of ourselves. It involves the notion of how you relate to others, plus there is another mega problem. Every culture has its own inherent antagonisms, conflicts, and so on. For example, my good friend Udi Aloni, who is sometimes even more crazy than you or me, which is quite an achievement then, he told me a wonderful story. There is a Palestinian uh, rapper, I forgot his name, I'm sorry, who recently visited the United States and about a year ago, I think, he gave a concert at UCLA. And you know what happened there? After the, and one of his songs was against honor killings. He also protests, of course, Zionist oppression, blah, blah. But he, and he was immediately attacked there. 
by some fanatical anti-Zionists, but wrong ones, I think, that why do you mention this? Don't you know that this serves the, the, serves the purposes of Zionism and so on? Basically, they accused him of being a Zionist a spy, slave, or whatever. And he gave a wonderful, dignified answer to this, of course, wealthy student. He said that the difference between you and me is that you study in one of the richest universities in the world, and you talk in this way to guarantee your career, to become popular with your wealthy, wealthy pseudo-radical professors in English, while I, in my country, sing in Hebrew and Arab to help women who really suffer there. And so you see this hypocrisy. In, instead of being glad, we don't have to patronize the Palestinians. We just have to join their own struggle. And they are not so marginal. There, it's a whole still minority, but a very strong movement on the West Bank, which says, OK, OK, anti-Zionist struggle. But at the same time, my God, we have many problems of our own like honor killings and so on. And to give you an example, they are even have wonderful sense of humor. They absolutely don't fit this ridiculous idea of, you know, fanatical Palestinians. Like, I'm sure if you know this story, it's not a dirty one. It's a wonderful one. It's based on that mistranslation. Every good, so I was told, uh, scientist who, a historian of Koran, knows that, you know, the stupid idea. If you are a martyr and go to heaven, you get 70 virgins and so on. Everybody knows that this is a translation mistake. The term used in Koran designates the top quality white grape raisins. And the expression, you will get 70. It's not virgins. This was at that time, 6th, 7th century, the standard phrase for hospitality. It means I give you a whole feast of Raisins, it means you are a welcome guest. And Palestinians told me this wonderful joke. There is an ugly Palestinian guy who wants to screw girls. He's ugly, no girl wants him. So he says, my God, I will become a martyr. I kill myself, I go up and I will get it there. Okay, he does it. He awakens in paradise and gets the raisins. And then he says, sorry, translation, mistake, translation. Can I go back, please? It was all a linguistic misunderstanding. <laughs> so you know what I'm saying here? This is the, like, you, I hate all those liberal centrist uh, atheists, which are now fashionable in the United States. Let's name them. name them. Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, and so on. You know why? First, they are not really neutral. I strategically agree with them when they criticize some type of radical left for you are allowed to mock everyone except Islam. Like, we should be tender there. You are immediately accused of Islamophobia. I agree with this. I absolutely think we should be ruthless also towards Islam. But the problem I have is that then let's be ruthless towards everyone. You know my problem with, you remember that Charlie Hebdo murders, you know. 
I always explode when I hear the story, oh my God, how open we are in Europe. You see, it's our spirit that you can make fun of everything. Those stupid Arabs think uh, some topics, Muslims are out, unmentionable, but it's not like this. And I think it's even good that it's not like this. Every culture has its, how should I call it, unmentionable points. Like, okay, in Europe you can make fun of Mohammed, but can you make fun of Holocaust? Try to do this and you will see how you will also be immediately excommunicated. Now, wait a minute. My point is not, so let's allow this also. My point is simply that to prohibit some things ethically is not in itself a bad thing. Now to provoke you, I will say it's even a sign of progress. I'm from progressive dogmaticism. Maybe you know the story, I will repeat it. Would you really like to live in a society where you would have to argue like Habermasian's rational argumentation why women should not be ra raped, you know? No, I would like to live in a society where this is, in a good sense, simply accepted as a self-evidence. So when some guy starts to deploy this tasteless line, you know, ooh, but don't you see she secretly enjoyed it and so on, you don't have to argue. The guy simply immediately appears as an idiot. You know, in this sense, I claim the first thing to accept is that, of course, it's not the same. I'm not saying our taboos are the same as their taboos. I'm just saying the first clear point. Every culture has its taboos. Don't have any illusions here. At certain level, we are more tolerant, but things are much more ambiguous. Let me tell you a story. This time, I think I don't repeat myself, at least not here. I used this yesterday in Brown Providence, but not here. Uh, you remember when some three, four years ago, when he was still president, Ahmadinejad, while he was at UN, visited Colombia, and there was a big public debate there. Now, I don't know if this is true, but I spoke with two Iranian friends of mine who told me something very interesting. What? They were there and they told me, and again, they were not friends, no friends of Ahmadinejad. My God, they were emigrants escaping Islamic revolution. But they said that the translation was totally misleading, namely, as you could have expected, some guy provocatively asked Ahmadinejad, how about homosexuals? How do you deal with them in Iran? And Ahmadinejad's reply was translated as, we don't have these problems, there are no homosexuals in Iran. Then, of course, everyone laughed and so on. Eh, but my friend told me, no, he gave effectively a much more refined answer. Something like, we deal with this in a totally different way than you. We don't talk about it and allow you to do it discreetly. And my friend told me that, that basically the implicit reference, because Ahmadinejad was an idiot, but he knew, you know, for them it's also the sacred book, the Old Testament. You know, is it, sorry, now comes my barbarism, is it the first or the second? Uh, Christ. No, fuck of Christ. Uh, uh, uh. Uh, it's the first of the, or the second uh, uh, commandment. You should celebrate no other gods. But you know that. Second. But you know how it 
chest completely in front of me. You shouldn't do it in front of me. It, it doesn't mean in front of me, of course, God is boss. So the idea is uh, do it discreetly but out of my sight. You have it even there, and you see here we encounter all these ambiguities of the notion of, uh, sorry, of, of, uh, of uh, neighbor, how to regulate it, and so on. This is why, uh, but I already talked about this in my classes. I don't to take, no, you know what? I've spoken already way too long, so let me nonetheless conclude. So my idea is this one, and whenever I hear this, uh, uh, people who claim, oh, Islamophobia, you shouldn't criticize the refugees. I say, tell them, first, I absolutely admit European responsibility. We should even give, I don't know, like 30, 40% of our budget, my God, fully open. But there is a but. My but is this one. Uh, for example, I recently saw, you can copy it on, I mean, look it on YouTube, the ZDF, and ZDF, Zweite Deutsches Rundfunk, remember, is the relatively social democratic leftist one. A report on honor killings and this in Muslim community in West Germany. And it's terrifying what you learn there. It's not a marginal phenomenon. You know, because people usually always name this example. It's easy to agree with them. Isn't it horrible that in France the state prohibited wearing the burqa, how do you call it here, the veil, whatever. I agree with it. But the problem is not this one. The problem is, is not the girl wants to wear it, the state prohibits it. Here I agree. But what if the girl doesn't want to wear it and her family threatens her? Now, my friend anti Islamophobic tell me, oh, you are a victim of Zionist Western propaganda. These are just marginal cases. No, two to three thousand per year in Germany. Such strong cases that the girls have to escape, and then they have already 25 around, how do you call it, exile, asylum home, when, where they, these girls are treated like, how do you call them, uh, uh, protected victims, you know, given anonymity, new identity, and so on and so on. And then uh, uh, Islam community says, and in a way they are right, but you are here privileging your ethics, which your ethical substance, which gives greater accent to individual freedom, to our where community collaboration, mutual help has greater predominance. So here I'm brutal. I wonder, I'm trying really to provoke you now. Although hopefully you will say, and then I will love you again, Avital, that uh, that there is no time for debate or whatever. That's no, exactly yeah, no, sorry, but seriously, now I always ask my friends who accuse me of Eurocentrism and so on. Okay, what about the thing that happened two years ago in Slovenia? A gypsy Roma girl escaped from her family, seek refugee in police because. Uh, uh, her father, uh, when she was 11, already married her, arranged marriage to her brother, and she didn't want to. And then, of course, all the feminists supported her. But the irony was that these same feminists who supported her 
were at the same time officially the greatest protectors of multiculturalism. You know, like, blah, blah, blah. And then uh, one of the leaders of Roma community appeared on Slovene TV and said something which was obviously true. He says, are you aware that arranged marriages are one of the absolutely crucial mechanisms of the reproduction of our society? You take this from us, and then we will survive, but a kind of a tourist spectacle people, you know. You come to listen to, to, to our songs, our food, but effectively, as a society, we will disappear. So what's my lesson here? The f it's not that I'm offering any easy solution, but the first thing is to establish that you have to make a choice here. You cannot say, no, no, even with Alain Badiou, I had a small conflict here, because he said, no, state should, be, should remain above all this. Okay, but I told him, let's say a girl comes to the police, or a more extreme example, then they are more rare. Here, there is definitely a lot of Western propaganda, but nonetheless, girl comes and says, okay, I want to avoid clitorodectomy. So what will you say? No, it's their cultural problem, let's not do it, and so on and so on. I mean, I'm claiming that, uh, you know, this is why, just to shock and provoke my friends, I tried to re habilitate the notion of light culture, le leading culture, not in the sense of our Christianity, but what I think we should not be ashamed to impose is certain rules which regulate how different cultures relate to each other. For example, this is not a marginal problem. My friends told me from Malmo, Berlin, and Amsterdam that uh, Gay communities were first well disposed towards Muslims. But then Muslims start to attack gays publicly. Okay, Judith Butler, I admire her for this, did the heroic thing. Because as a reaction to this, gay community made some homo Islamophobic, not homophobic, that would be too much, statements. She reject, refused to accept a big prize of, offered by her there. But Nonetheless, you see what I mean. There is no easy way out. At a certain level, you have to impose some rules. You cannot escape it. And this is, for me, light culture. And I'm here moderately Eurocentric, and I will tell you why. Because it's so suspicious for me today. Why is it all of a sudden so acceptable to be anti-Eurocentric. I think this is not a good sign of victory of anti-colonial struggle. On the contrary, it's uh, one of the signs of the dark times we are approaching when, as I always emphasize, capitalism no longer needs democracy and so on. Because uh, the message is, and that's what so-called capitalism with Asian values, which of course has nothing to do with Asia, but all with modern form of capitalism, more and more functions as authoritarian capitalism. Who are for me typical leaders of today? Like uh, uh, Modi in India. At the same time, ultra neoliberal in economy and Hindu fundamentalist. Or Turkey, Erdogan, nightmare. 
You know what is the official electoral motto, not in these elections, I think in previous elections? Shop and pray. Not even work and pray or whatever, all right. I will stop now. Okay, but just my Hegelian point that I finish. <laughs> my pessimism is this one, that we have against this standard Marxist progressive teleology, we have a unique chance, revolution, we know, accept a more radical openness of the historical process. We have problems today, it's obvious. I will not even enumerate them. But we have to accept that when we start to fight for freedom, whatever, that the beginning of the struggle is always, by definition, caught into illusions. Because your first re in your first reaction, you formulate what I call in some of my books the immanent utopia. That's why I even go so far as to mention how Marx's idea of communism is basically capitalism without capitalism. His dream is to retain all the capitalist dynamics, expanded self-reproduction and so on, but without the form of capitalism. I claim this doesn't work. And to conclude with a joke, which I maybe even used here, but I don't think so, uh, my last obscenity, but a friendly one, that's the lesson of Hegel. He was aware of this. Ah, yeah, sorry, just this. That's why, this was my final point, we have to be Hegelians. Hegel's position was unique, and I claim it's our position today. Hegel's position was this one. There was the first attempt at liberation, French Revolution. And in Hegel's view, I don't agree with him here, but that doesn't matter, it ended catastrophically with terror, self-destructive terror. But Hegel's problem is how precisely at this point, when the first attempt fails, how to keep the emancipatory motive alive, how to remain faithful to it, how to do it again better. In this sense, Hegel was, I think, the ultimate Beckettian, you know. Try again, fail again, fail better, you know. And I know how to use this term. My good friend, Frank Ruda, the best maybe young German philosopher, recently got a new girlfriend who is a specialist in Beckett. And I told Frank Ruda, I know what your girlfriend told you after you spent the first night together. <laughs> Try again, fail again, fail better, or whatever. <laughs> we are still friends. No, but quite seriously, isn't this our situation today? There was a big attempt of liberation, 20th century communism. It failed in that form. How to remain faithful, how to repeat that without either resigning, oh, it doesn't work, let's just remain liberals. How to avoid being Fukuyama and, non and retain fidelity. How to repeat and make it better, which means not being less radical, but even more, and that's the final joke, I'm sorry if you know it, with which I will, believe me or not, really conclude. Uh, you know, what happened to me, I'm sorry if you know the joke, about two years ago, I will not say where, I don't want to compromise, but a, a, a lady in her early 40s flirted with me and obviously wanted to seduce me, which is, again, here I look like John Wayne. What did she see in me? How? beyond my scope, why would she want to do this? But the point is this one, that like, to seduce me, she told me, you know, when my last lover saw me naked, 
he told me, if you were to lose two, three pounds, your body would have been perfect. Poor lady. Instead of sex, she got from me two hours lesson of, on Lacanian object small a, you know. Because my point was this one, that, uh, and you will see connection with our situation, a, a profoundly Hegelian point. Hegel was always aware of it. Now, common sense tells you, okay, then, I'm sorry for this sexist example, but it can be done with a different level. Okay, then let me lose three pounds and I will be perfect. My answer is no, and that's dialectic. Uh, there is a mirage of perfection, but only this mirage is generated by that excess, you know. There is a certain disturbing excess which generates the mirage of, my God, if we just get rid of that excess, we have perfection. No, we don't have. That's the most, and this is a similar mirage is of refugees and so on and so on, which is why, again, we live in difficult times. And uh, like, we precisely, I remain a Marxist communist in the sense of, I don't think that in the long term, today's global capitalism will be able to deal with, not to resolve them, but even to cope with its antagonisms. But I don't dare to propose a simple positive formula, that's it. I think, and this is the Hegelian view, any formula that we proposed will have to be redefined, remain caught, will have to remain caught in the process. Now, just the last reply, you will tell me, but what am I bullshitting here? But didn't Hegel propose his formula, which is the corporate state described in his philosophy of right? I claim emphatically no. And Robert Pippin draw my attention to a fact here. You know, the most famous almost passage from forward, uh, uh, forward to Hegel's philosophy of right, where, you know, that famous passage, uh, the stupid bird, whatever, all takes off its flight in the evening. And then Hegel says explicitly, it's not the duty of philosophy to describe the way the world should ideally be, because, he says, whenever you can conceptually describe a certain social edifice, it means its time has already passed. Now, I claim it's reasonable to conclude that Hegel was not a complete idiot, which means he was aware that exactly the same held for his philosophy of right. He's not describing their uh, model as, he is usually read as model conservative, like French Revolution went too far, but we, so, a kind of a compromise between traditional authority, king, and freedom somewhere in between? Absolutely not. If anything, Hegel, it's so interesting to read last Hegel, the last text that Hegel wrote, is that comments on the British reform bill, that electoral change, which was for Hegel already too much, like too much equality, free elections. But that's not matter. What matters is that you can fear Del Hegel's anxiety. He felt that something new is emerging, and he was totally at a loss. What is this? What is emerging? Maybe this is how we should proceed today. I'm sorry if I was too long, but on the other hand, fuck you, I'm not really sorry. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Where are we? I don't even know.
Do you have something with Solstein? Because I, uh, no, where are we? We're supposed to go. But, ah, but just don't tell me, you know, there is a deeply conservative right wing uh, uh, bureaucratic reasoning that I hate, which manipulates with working class. Whenever organizers, and I'm not blaming you, you're a good girl here. Okay, not a girl, just good. Whatever. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 they use, the least this of happens regularly, especially in London. They am. say, Professor, we would love to debate for hours, but you know, Poor cleaning girls, cleaning ladies are waiting there and they are paid and we... This is the usual excuse, it's a manipulation, no? But whatever, where are we now? We're here. We are here, yes. No, I meant not in <laughs> As this As Hegel sense. famously said. Yeah, yeah. Okay, should we nonetheless save democracy with one question or Well, one? what we could do perhaps is this does anyone want to make an urgent claim, counterclaim, dance, I really sing, mean it. song like, of praise? This is not a phrase or a bad As long joke, as you don't it? answer, I'm happy to uh, hear no, the questions. No, it's my old joke. You know what I would like to do? To give you this type of Oriental Zen Buddhism, Zen Buddhism bullshit answer, like clap with one hand or whatever. Good, you know? good. <laughs> no, but seriously, I would love to hear it. This is not an empty offer. Like... Is there anyone here who brutally disagrees with me about precisely that problematic point towards the end? For example, I have some friends in London who claim, no, there are certain third world local traditions which can effectively serve as, to use the fashionable term, sites of resistance against global capitalism. The last story I loved was from my Latino-American friend, Oscar Guardiola, yes, in uh, London, who told me ancient Latin, I mean, Okay, pre you were going to ask, see if anyone had a question. No, no, okay, I will not no, do this, I don't but my usual joke would be to start the debate position. by asking myself, Professor, what did you want to say in the remaining part of your talk? And then, oh, oh but, that, yeah, like yeah. someone's going to ask Seriously, that. please, I, I'm not bluffing. Briefly, but... I would be really interesting because I know I'm fully aware of the problematic nature of what I claim here. Do you have some serious brutal attack, please? Oh, you are the guy, please. Uh, sure, no, I mean, I, my question is, uh, don't you think that you're staying in a determinism of historical materialism like this? Just in what sense? Because you're just saying that we're going to have to wait for another great Hegelian leap and you're saying that we shouldn't fantasize any radical, positive uh, organizational strategies. Just kind no, of, I didn't uh, say this. I said, like Beckett, we should do it, but we should be aware that it's open that we don't know where we are going. Marx was, for me, way too much a determinist. Okay, he didn't want to give specifics of communism, but he had this basic vision of history today, opens a unique perspective of global emancipation and so on and so on. I don't buy that. I totally buy Marxist analysis. It's still not only the best, but only almost the only one of uh, how capitalism reproduces itself, antagonisms and so on and so on. But already with proletarian working class, I have problems. I think uh, like, for example, who is today a proletarian? 
it's already the problem with intellectual workers. I disagree with both standard versions. One is the negri version, screw the ordinary working class, intellectual workers are the only proletarian, there is the opposite version and so on. Then, Fred Jensen drew attention to it. Uh, it's Fred Jensen made a wonderful proposal, although it's not sure to me how to formulate it in economic terms, that somehow we should devise a conceptual apparatus to talk also about the exploitation of the unemployed. Although in the formal terms, of course, they don't work there. You know what I mean? Like, we need to think, that's, the only, that's my only message, and I'm not only abstractly not saying, let's do nothing and wait. If anything, my formula is, you know, this is the way to make it sure that nothing will happen. That's why I, for example, admire, although temporarily they lost, what Syriza did and so on. They tried to do it. And you know, here I'm an enemy. I know what we will say now, maybe. <laughs> I claim that, for example, not because they were too leftist. Some of my leftist friends came, what about left platform, Grexit, and so on? Precisely their program was nothing new. I read it in detail, I debated with them. Uh, the, you know that left platform, the minority. I think it's a great wisdom of Greek voters that they fucked them off. Because if you read closely their program, Grexit, nationalized banks, invest, it's just the old radical social democratic state socialism. It would have been a total catastrophe. I claim. But nonetheless, that's why, no, I'm not just sitting and waiting for a Hegelian moment. I am just saying, take risks here and there, do whatever. My heroes are like, till now, it's open what will happen now. Syriza, I have greater doubts with Podemos. I think they are too much caught in certain uh, uh, apolitical rhetorics, like left-right don't matter, just that people really rule. Uh, my re problem with them is always, I told them they really hated me. I was recently in Spain. I told them, are you aware that what you are saying? I told them, I know you don't mean it this way, but abstractly, if just take what you are saying. Every honest fascist would totally subscribe it. Yes, capital shouldn't dominate us, it should serve people, blah, blah. You know, my heroes are also people like, I don't know, uh, Aristide in Haiti. It was a totally hopeless situation, but he simply tried to do whatever. Uh, the only element of what you are indicated, let's wait, it's not that there will be a great Hegelian positive chance of a new revolution. No, I'm much more pessimist. I, what I'm sure of is that new crises will explode. For example, it's clear that what they did now with Greece, no? The result is that in five years from now, instead of 240 billions, the Greek debt will be half, uh, half, uh, half uh, how do you call it, uh, f at least 400 billions. And my idea is, although I'm much more pessimist here, because Varoufakis told me that I should not underestimate the extent to which even Syriza ministers and administrators are already co-opted into European Union mechanisms. But I claim maybe there is a minor chance 
I basically gave them a Stalinist, but in a good sense, advice. Don't just dream about change. Penetrate the state apparatuses. Police, even secret police, legal. You know, get ready, because the tragedy was now, that was the message of Varoufakis to me. They thought we are in power and we can do. Fuck, you know, they cannot. Varoufakis told me horrible stories. He had a confidential meeting with two of his closest advisors before he took a flight to Brussels. Then he learned there that the same evening his closest advisor, picked from Syriza by him, already informed, they knew sometimes better than Syriza what Syriza's politics is. So I told them, organize themselves, slowly penetrate the state apparatus and get ready for the next crisis. When's your next class? Sorry? Your next class here at NYU on Friday? No, tomorrow. Tomorrow. But so tomorrow, I will. I warn you, it's serious stuff. We will go in detail through that uh, uh, right. Brandon book on Hegel. The subtitle could have been this Kantian renormalization of Hegel. What does it miss in Hegel? Right, and we might consider reading in, in, in tandem with what you've proposed tonight also, Derrida, unconditional ho hospitality and hostility and immigration. I, which combined with hostility and not this sentimental hospitality. Exactly. That's exactly. so crucial, you know. But also the aporias because... Aporias, that's crucial, right? yeah. That's my message, not screw the refugees, right, but right. don't behave as that we just have to open ourselves, you know, and yeah, because yeah. if You're we ignore these tough problems, if we ignore with this, you know, I'm saying I'm against, of course, we should criticize Islam, but at the same time, everyone should be criticized. Like, that's my point, even Buddhism, because, you know, those anti-Islamist, let's call them, uh, atheists, Sam Harris, and so on. If you read them closely, you always notice that they pretend to be against every religion, but they have their own exception. There are two main exceptions, usually, for them. Either Judaism or Buddhism, Oriental. For example, Sam Harris says Judaism is different. Well, maybe, but you find shit everywhere. Like, you know, everybody knows that passage, you know, Moses on the mountain, that m when Moses quotes Martin Luther King or the other way around, you know, oh, I've seen it down the valley. Fuck you, let's see what happens after you died and Joshua down. You have the first explicit, brutal example of ethnic cleansing, you know. The promised land was not empty. All those Canaanites or whatever yeah, were there. Right. And Moses said, kill them all. The same is with Buddhism. There are wonderful... Uh, people usually say, but nonetheless, there is no Buddhist terrorism like with Islam. Fuck you, there is. I will give you examples. Thailand, okay. Thailand Sri Lanka, Ceylon. Absolutely. Sorry? Absolutely. What does it mean? No, I'm, I'm extremely engaged concretely here and there. Radical democracy, if you ask, I'm first, I'm not a fetishist of democracy. I can well imagine examples, even bourgeois ones, acceptable to people. Look, this is my usual provocation. Once I was with Finkelkraut in that stupid radio oh, talk. Now you're really going No, no, low. but I will very short. Sorry, this is interesting. We, we and I told him, can you imagine a situation where you have a legitimate government, undoubtedly democratically elected, and then a tiny minority, 
calls for fighting against this government and brutally starts killing it. He says, no. I told him, General de Gaulle. Every history of France tells you that first, this is the oppressed part. Uh, Pétain was, you know, when Germans were advancing to somewhere down there to Bordeaux or I don't know, to Toulouse, the French Assemblée Nationale withdrew, Nationale withdrew there. And Pétain was legitimately, legitimately in a formal democratic sense, of course, nominated the uh, ruler of France and undoubtedly communists admitted this. Somewhere till 42, if there were to be so-called free elections, Pétain would have probably won with 90%. What General de Gaulle did absolutely was not democratically legitimized. His idea was, no, we don't recognize this uh, government and armed struggle. We start killing them and so on. I'm here on de Gaulle's side. So, you know, but even Ernesto Laclau is more ambiguous here. For some time, he was more for democracy in the sense of, you know, blah, blah. The, uh, then, all of a sudden, through his, he had hopes that he will become what he later has become in Argentina, that is to say, state philosopher of Chavez. Né? And all of a sudden, he started to talk about progressive potentials of military coup d'etat, no, and so on. You, you know what I mean? I'm, radical democracy is, for me, again, it doesn't tell enough. It's too empty, too empty a, a word for me. Thank you very much for emptying out some of these uh, cliches and, and let's and continue. Ah, wait a minute. No, now we're done. You, yes. we're done. Here I protest against you. The best line of Sam Goldwyn is, you know, the, the legend when uh, some studio, his studio was criticized by some journalists. There are too many old cliches in your movies. You know, he wrote a memo then to his scenario department. We urgently need new original cliches. It's deeply true because it's easy to be original with just originality. The true revolution is to introduce new cliches. Cliches are the stuff of everyday life. We need new cliches. And I'm afraid if you pursue this revisionist lines, line, I wonder if there will be a place for you in this society of new cliches. Honestly. Well, let's <laughs> thank you very much. You are.